You may invite you to open the Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. Turning there, I'd like to just add my own uh, welcome to Ben and the campers, to the students who are here. Uh, we are delighted to have you. I think um, you said in the past, uh, it's still true today, it's, it's a great church, uh, but it's better when you're here. And so we want to be a, uh, a resource for you as you're pursuing your studying and your future. Uh, and yet at the same time, we want you to know how much blessing you are to us. That same truth extends to everybody who's here. Uh, it's a great church, but we're better when you're here. And so whether you are a first-time guest or whether you are a long-time member, we are delighted to be able to gather together because God's called us together as a community. And what a delight it is to be here this morning. Just as uh, Daniel noted uh, this morning, as we're going to be looking at Isaiah 40. Next week, uh, both Sunday School, which Alan Slade will be leading, and the message that I'll be leading, we're going to take a look at uh, at God's gift to us of work, or how our work actually is, is a gift and, and honor God um, in celebration of Labor Day. Um, and so we thought we would do that. And then starting the 13th, we'll be doing a study of the Summer of the Mount throughout the rest of the fall. Then after our holiday uh, series, uh, beginning in January, we're going to do a verse by verse of the Beatitudes, and then finish out the spring with a uh, petition by petition of, uh, of the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. So if you have a bookmarker that can be permanent in Matthew 5 through 7, we're going to be there for a while, uh, but we're confident that the Lord will bless us because as uh, we kind of labeled it, it's the manifesto of the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ has given to his people. So if you are a believer who wants to understand what does it mean to live out our faith, it's there. If you are a Christian or not a Christian, so he's exploring what is Christianity, that's what it's supposed to look like. We'll be looking at that together. This morning, however, we're in Isaiah 40, looking at verses 3 through 11 as a follow-up of looking at the first two verses last week as we seek practically to understand how is it that we are able to be in comfort uh, from our God and from God's promises. So Isaiah 40, beginning our reading in verse 3, hear the word of God. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, a herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arm. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those who are with the young. So better way of saying is that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord 
does in the Lord's Lord. Let's go to our God and pray that he would speak to us from this word. Father, we do come to you with thanksgiving for these words, not only for the beauty of the poetry, uh, but the power of, 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 of its impact that it has when your people, enlightened by your spirit, come and consider what you are claiming. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be at work now to open our minds that we may understand, to realize that what the mind is feeding through the mind becomes a kindling for the heart. We pray that you would not be limited to our minds when we were not in your but that what you would reveal would cause us comfort, delight, joy. We might be breathed to praise you, for through your word we are reminded how great the love is for us. Lord, may we feel your love in this time that we consider the word, and we hear your voice speaking by your spirit. We pray on your glory and our joy. In Christ. Though he's been dead for nearly 90 years, Harry Houdini is still widely considered to be the greatest magician in all of entertainment history. He began when he was about 17 years old doing different events on Coney Island, eventually was able to join up on the circus and travel. While he was traveling, he developed a number of the uh, the tricks that he became known for, particularly those dealing with escape in ways that astounded people then and that contemporary magicians are still trying to emulate and to astound people now, even people who have become far more sophisticated and seen far more things before their eyes in terms of entertainment, but the television, the movies, and other things. So you connect the magicians today continue to want to be and aspire to be like Houdini. But because of being a magician, was among the most famous people in the world during his day. One of the most influential as well. As great as his accomplishments were during his life, his legacy probably was bolstered more because of his death and the way that he died than even anything that he accomplished during the days he was. I know it's a familiar story for a number of of you, but it's a, it's a fascinating thing to, to consider. Because in addition to his prestidigital talents, I've been practicing that one all week, <laughs> the baby was also reported to be the strongest man alive. He would boast that he was able to take a body blow from anybody, and it wouldn't hurt him at all. Then one evening while he was backstage preparing for a performance. A young art student who had sketched Houdini and wanted to deliver his gift came backstage, was admitted to come backstage, and brought with him two of his friends, two of the fraternity brothers, one of whom happened to be an, an, an amateur boxer. As they gave Houdini the sketch and they began to talk and enjoying the parade together, really enjoying Houdini's willingness to spend time with them. They asked the question about whether it was true that he was that strong and able to withstand a body blow. Houdini said it absolutely was true, and he invited them to try it. And as Houdini was standing up, before he got fully up and braced himself, the young boxer gave him three body blows that doubled Houdini over. Still went on stage that night, did three shows. Then again the next day, and again the next day. For three nights after he absorbed those blows, he did three shows each of those nights, 
performing while in the audience's the unjoined so entangled. The people closest to him, his wife, his brother, his assistants, were all telling him from that first day, cut out the performances. You need to go see a doctor. And yet in his own strength and his assumption that he would be able to overcome it, he went on stage, performed while the audience had no idea that he was in a type of pain. Eventually, after a couple of days, he decided he would accept the advice of the people who were close to him, and he did go to see a doctor. The doctor checking him over said, we need to do an exploratory surgery. In the exploratory surgery, they saw that his appendix had been ruptured by one of the blows. Because it had been several days since it had actually ruptured peritonitis, etc. This was the day before antibiotics, and so that was a lethal, uh, a lethal prognosis. So the strongest man in the world reported was done in by a punch. He died because of complications of his issues. Again, as I said, it's, it's a familiar story, but it does fascinate me. I also think that the story has some practical reminders to us, things that we um, come to understand. I think perhaps most of all that it speaks to me, it says this, is that no matter, no matter who you are or how strong you may feel, all of us experience periods of weakness, weariness, and woundedness. And it may be especially so when we feel that life has thrown us a sucker punch. But when we are in those periods of weakness, of weariness, and woundedness, that's a time in particular that we need to know how to draw comfort from the wells of God's witness. Here in Isaiah 40, we have what many theologians and Bible scholars consider to be one of the greatest springs of, of grace, one of the greatest sources, wells, from which to draw the truths of the gospel that are, when applied, bring us comfort. As the book itself indicates, it's written by the prophet Isaiah, who was raised up by God. In the first 39 chapters of this book, with God speaking from Isaiah to God's people who had been a long time not only ignoring God's commands, but as we looked at last week, as I said last week, they essentially in their lives were raising their hand and extending their little finger toward God, saying, We'll live the way we want to live, but we expect you to continue to live our blessings. God was slow to anger, incredibly patient with his people. Nevertheless, it is not going to be ignored, not going to be mocked, and brought discipline and judgment upon his people. For the first 39 chapters, he makes the case of why this was not only necessary, but it was also just. He explains what's going to happen. He told them that he was going to send his people into exile. Now, that wasn't going to happen for about 200 years, 150, 200 years after Isaiah was writing. But it was very clear this is what's going to happen. Then beginning in verse 40, continuing through uh, or chapter 40, continuing through uh, chapter 55, God who has brought judgment rightly as an expression of his holiness, his perfection, his sovereignty, also is writing to people, knowing that when they first read it, they may not make that much difference to them, but he's pointing to something else that is also true of him that's an incredibly merciful. Knowing that people, when they are in a foreign territory, when they are in a cultural wilderness of Babylon, a spiritual desert, that they're going to be greatly grieved and weary and worried. God who had sent them into that exile wanted them to know that he continues to love them and he was going to be provide comfort for them. And so Isaiah then shifts gears 
writing for people who are yet to be born, but people who would read it, who are living at a time that they feel that they are far from God and thinking that God has forsaken them. Isaiah writes in this, this particular chapter words of encouragement to those who feel done in, rejected, and forsaken. And as we look at this particular passage, this morning, I, the question that I, I think that we need to ask, or the question that we're going to be asking is, when we are experiencing our weariness, our woundedness, or feeling weak, when we are in need of comfort, how is it that we are to gain the comfort? How are we going to draw it out of the wells of God's grace? I mean, there's nothing more frustrating than to know that there's something there that we need, but we can't get at it. And yet I think that's the experience that many Christians seem to have. Many people seem to have. They know that God makes these promises, and yet they live without them because they don't know how to get at them. How are we going to appropriate grace that brings comfort and renewal and even leads to joy? And even in these verses, we see really three different ways that they work together, three different reflections in working together that God has called us and invited us as people who he is offering grace to, to draw it out, to appropriate it, to be refreshed. The first thing that I want us to see is this, is the, the instruction that, that we have here that I think if we take these verses together is the first way that we draw God's grace is to take, take the light and the glory of God that has been revealed. Now, I thought about that all week long, because that sounds just incredibly religious and trying to toy with it and write it in a simple way. But, but really, I, I think that we need to stick with that, or at least I do. And when we're done looking at that point, it'll, it'll make sense. We need to take the light and the glory of God that has been revealed is really the instruction we see in these first verses we're considering here. Now again, we need to realize that God's writing people who are exiled, who feel like they're in a wasteland, the wilderness of desert, and that God is far from them. And what these passages are saying is that God is telling people that feel like that that He's coming to visit them. And these first verses, He's declaring, so since I'm going to come to visit, make a highway, metaphorical, but make a highway that I'm going to use to come to see my people. And so as we look, here's it's exactly what He's saying here at the beginning of verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. God is coming to visit. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, again, in the poetry and the, the language, it may just seem um, difficult to comprehend, but really what's being described here is something that we've all seen at one time or another. I mean, imagine with these words, orange tones, lined up, people with hardbacks and yellow vests, all working highway workers, being highway workers. It's exactly what is being described here. That's what he's saying. He's talking about, let's gather some road workers who are going to make straight in the desert a highway for God. We see it even around here, perhaps, uh, as, as I read these next verses, consider thinking about anything that could be driven on Route 5 over the past couple of years and watching the Capitol Trail being built. It gives us an idea of what's being discussed. While that's not exactly a highway, a bicycle highway, it's the same imagery. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. As you've been driving up, you realize it's part of the destruction of people that are wearing the yellow vests the hard hats, the orange cones, where there are gullies, they're filling it in with filled dirt, where there are hills, they're laying them flat, 
and where there's a creek, they're just putting a bridge so that everything is, is a, a smoother, easier ride. And then he, the promise here is every even uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain out. That's what the highway workers do whenever they build a highway. Is that they, they do the construction work, they do the major road, the easiest that is possible uh, to be able to be traveled. That's exactly what God is calling for here. He's calling for people to create a highway that He's going to use. Now, what we need to notice from this promise is is this is that when God is calling for the establishment of a highway, God is declaring to his people that there is nothing that is going to get in the way and hinder him from reconciling his people to himself. Every obstacle is going to be removed. Every obstacle is going to be leveled. God is the one who's declared the order. This is what's going to happen. God has not only the authority, but God has the power. And here he's laying out for us uh, a, a, a metaphor of a plan. He says, make straight, prepare. Now, for some of you, those are probably familiar words. Those of you who are Bible students will recognize that those are the words that are in the New Testament applied to John the Baptist. That John the Baptist was one who went out in the wilderness and was crying out, prepare for the way of the Lord. Make straight paths. John the Baptist was raised up for the purpose of of giving comfort to a people who had not heard from God in quite a long time. He was the, the forerunner of the, of the Savior. His purpose was to declare. He himself, in one sense, was the highway because he's announcing, he's clearing out the way, announcing that when God becoming the flesh, God incarnate, people would recognize the prophecies had been fulfilled. So the New Testament scholars, believers of all generations, have recognized. John the Baptist term, he was actually fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, really playing the role of Isaiah to a point that some people later on thought that he was a reincarnation of Isaiah, which is not a biblical teaching, but the Bible teaches that's what people were thinking. So it seems obvious this points to John the Baptist. But if the words are here speak and point to John the Baptist, then it makes sense that the promise of John the Baptist declares is what's in mind here from the promise of the given. The words that prepare the way belong to John the Baptist, and the promise that he is going to follow points to the person of Jesus Christ, who is the one that John, through Isaiah, has revealed for the time. Jesus is the glory of God to be revealed. I mean, look at the promises that are in this particular passage. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. In other words, God is going to come. And Jesus was revealed to be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And all humanity is going to see him at one time. Jesus came as God incarnate into the world in a particular time, in a particular place. He didn't just pop up all over the world. He came, and all who had the opportunity, more or less, saw him in that generation. All eyes saw him at once. And so what we have here is the promise of God coming to us in the first name of Christ. So if you're one of those people who, from time to time, when you find yourself in difficulty, hardship, and you wish that God would show himself some way, now reveal yourself, show up, just help me know that you're real. What God is saying to us through this passage is, 
I put my glory, revealed my glory in my son. He came and dwelt among you for a time. So we need to look to him who has come already, promised to come again. We need to consider him because God has already come. So if we have a desire to see God, God's already come up. But one of the things that's important as I wrap this part up and see that this is really essentially the promises of the gospel. I mean, that's, that's what's promised here in these particular verses. I mean, the good news of the gospel is that in Christ, every obstacle has been removed from the relationship that we desire from God. That God has come and has dwelt with us. And now anyone who has a longing to be in relationship with God, anyone who desires to know God, is able to know him in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the revelation of God. He is the glory of God. The scriptures tell us that all of God's glory was seen in him. Which is why when I try to simplify what we need to realize this is what's plain to God's glory revealed in person of Christ. And in order to gain comfort, we draw from him. We take delight in all that he has accomplished, all that he represents, all that he has promised us. What does that mean for us? Well, in one sense it means in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our, our hardships that we all are going to experience one time or another. We're going to find our comforts. We're able to find our comforts. And the glory of God revealed to us in the person of Christ. All that Christ is and can do. And we consider that we are able to be comfortable in something. It also reminds me that that truth sometimes is in conflict with our own instinct. Because if you're like me, your instinct at times, particularly in the midst of the deepest judgments is to simply want whatever the problem is to be removed as quick as possible. And really, God, I, here my prayer can be very simple. God, I don't care what, has, what I want to take. Just fix it. That's the desire of my heart. There's an aspect of faith in that. I, I mean, I know God can do what I can. I trust that God has a desire to do what is good. But in my case, I rarely take the time to stop and think what God might be doing. And our instinct has actually robs us from the possibility of deepening the joy that we desire. Here's what I mean by that. There's a beautiful prayer in the collection of prayers called the Valley of Vision. In the prayer that is offered, that the book is titled Valley of Vision, listen to this prayer that actually speaks to us about how we gain the greatest comfort. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. The deeper the well, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, and your glory in my valley. In other words, when my tendency is to say, God, I'm suffering, I'm hurting, I'm weak, I'm weary, just eradicate this, I'm missing an opportunity to really dig down and receive a grace that brings not only relief, but comfort. 
and comfort that leads to joy. Because in the midst of the difficulties, I have an opportunity to compare what I'm experiencing with who God is and what God has promised. And the weirdness and yet the power of God's promise in the gospel is that we who belong to God, because of Jesus Christ, can experience joy even when we are in the midst of suffering because the promises that are in contrast, we can experience both. God's grace overwhelms even our circumstances. And so in these passages that so vividly start off and point us to the glory of God revealed in the person of Christ and all his promises, it starts us there. And so the first way of drawing comfort is to take the line and the glory of God revealed. Take the line of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. But secondly, Isaiah goes on and he tells us something, something a little simpler. Is that we are to take God in his word and trust in his promises. In verse 6, we start, we see, we get a, to look in on an interesting but you know, short conversation. We also get to see an example of what I call a functional unbelief. The kind of functional unbelief is both believing and not appropriating at the same time, which is where most of us live. That hinders us from experiencing the comfort that we so desperately want. Here's the conversation. God begins by saying this cry. And Isaiah responds, What shall I cry? In other words, God says, Cry, and Isaiah says, Okay, but I have no idea what I'm supposed to say. And so God tells him, using an interesting poem, poetic speech. God says this, here's what Isaiah's crying, all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely people are grass. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. God's responding by orienting Isaiah's mind to himself. But what is intriguing to me is perhaps what the mindset of Isaiah was, why he wasn't sure what he was supposed to say. It's because Isaiah, who's a lot like us, seems to have been, and many uh, Old Testament scholars were suggesting this, Isaiah was looking at the circumstances. And he was looking at the resources of the people and the possibility of strategizing. How do we get ourselves out of this situation in order to get back to feeling the comfort that we relieve, that we bring us relief? Isaiah was looking to his own power rather than looking to the providence and the provision of God. It's one of the mistakes that all of us, or many of us, are prone to make. God draws Isaiah's attention back to himself. It's interesting here because these words tell us something that's also true, and sometimes in the church, especially as Reformed churches, we kind of get wrong. Humanity is affirmed here tremendously in these verses. In verse 6, God says, All flesh is grass, and he's got a point that he's going to make. But here's what God says about us as grass. And all its beauty is like a flower in the field. God is acknowledging that we were created after his own image. We do have beauty. We do have value. We do have 
assets that are ours, but they're frail and they're limited and they're passive. But nevertheless, it's important that we validate that because sometimes we teach so much about the depravity that we lose sight of the fact that God says we're here. Not only his people, but anybody who is created. But even in that affirmation, he's reminding us that we are not our own answer. I find it very interesting when Isaiah doesn't respond once the light bulb seems to go off. Or even more, when God doesn't tell Isaiah to say. When Isaiah says, okay, I'll cry, Lord, what is it you want me to cry? The Lord nor Isaiah say, well, tell them to channel their inner strength. God says, that doesn't go very far. You don't see God saying, tell them if they only had faith, they wouldn't suffer, they would prosper. They just need to believe, have faith in faith. Isaiah doesn't say, hey, when you're hurting, just do your best and trust the power of the rest. He knows all three of those are lies. One of the growing paganism and new age that is permeating our culture. Humanism, we have the power. One is from the prosperity gospel that declares just believe, just the, the innate value of believing something, and that if you are experiencing suffering, you must be out of the will of God. Clearly, is the case. Contemporary evangelicalism has reduced Christianity. To performance and reduce grace to being God makes up whatever it is that we can't afford it to build. What God does is rather than pointing us to these, looking at our own resources in one way or another, He points us entirely at Himself in His passage in verse 8. And He says, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. He's saying, look, you're beautiful, you have assets, but they're not going to save you because you know what I mean when I'm using this illustration. But in comparison to what fades, my words, my promises, my record of what I've done for you, that will endure forever. Nothing will cause it to fade, tarnish, or become impotent. This is what God has done. Now look at the promises that we find here in this passage. That God is, this is God's word. This is what God's word to people who are weary, people who are in need of comfort. Verse 2. We see God saying that he's going to pardon our sins. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Like a warfare has ended, her iniquity is pardoned. Promise of God. For wayward people, not good people, not people who have been seeking after God, but people who have been healing me. And the glory of God revealed the person of Jesus Christ, my sin again, forgiven. Verse 5. You see, the glory of God is revealed to us in that person of Christ. Now, why does that matter? When I look at this passage, I kind of think of soldier who may be uh, deployed away from home for a long time. But a picture of what a family or a picture of home helps them feel that he's connected to friends, 
comfort, even though it's not the fulfillment. The word of God, the promise of the way things are spiritually and will be one day, keep us connected to God and his promises. Going down to verse 11, we see that God has promised to be the one who hangs his own blood. He doesn't raise up higher kings. There's no mediator. If you belong to God, God will relate to you in a very personal way, in a very intimate way, in a way that, that he's more aware of you than you are of He's more in tune with your circumstances and surroundings than you could possibly be. These are the promises of God. Backing up to verse 8, talks about the promise of God, that his word will endure forever. The reason he lifts that up for us as a promise is it's in his word that we find the promises that bring us comfort and we can trust. Practically speaking, I think of it this way. Carol and I are still, we're seeing a light at the end of the tunnel, but we're still in that phase of life where we are paying college tuitions. Fortunately for us, we graduated, we were paying two for the past few years, we graduated one in May, and then we sent another one off uh, this year, so it's still the same thing. So in order to um, minimize some of those expenses we began researching several years ago of scholarships that are available, Learn that there are millions and millions of dollars that are available in unclaimed scholarships. Some of them are really kind of odd. There was a scholarship that was available for only left-handed people. None of our kids could cut it left-handed. There was a scholarship for red-handed people. Apparently they wanted that pencil. <laughs> For those who went to go to Ball State University, I mean, David Letterman has established a scholarship that requires you to be a C student. Now understand, he's not saying a C student is the minimum. He's saying, you're a C student. There have been people who got that scholarship and were too good of students. And they were threatened put on probation to lose the scholarship and told, go find some other things to do. You're studying too much. David Letterman, as an average student, wanted to be memorialized in this way. There are all sorts of weird, weird scholarships out there, which should be encouraging to those of you in school, and there is a way that you can help your families out, those of you who need to uh, send kids to college. But here's the thing, the reason that those dollars are out there are unclaimed, they dollars exist, they're very real, but unless somebody knows about it and applies for it, and then draws out the money from the funds, qualifies for it, the funds are there, but there's no benefit for me, my family, for you. The promises of God are the same way. Isaiah here is saying, look, we need to take God at his word and we need to trust his promises. But just knowing that God has made promises does no good for us. We need to dig in, take them in the word, and actually realize we put our trust in the promise that our sins have been forgiven, that we have been reconciled to God, because God has revealed his glory fully in the person of Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection. What confident when we draw the promises of God that are rooted in the person of Jesus. And then lastly, as I look at these verses, very simply, I think Isaiah is calling for us to rest in the good shepherd's care. Throughout the scriptures, we see a lot of metaphors, and God reveals himself as in a lot of different types. One of the most common one, or most um, known one, is coming from the Psalms, and the rock is the fortress. 
see in, in Psalm 46. One of the more intriguing ones to me, I don't know why it's more important than the other ones, is earlier, I think is also in Isaiah. When Isaiah, uh, God reveals through Isaiah that God likens himself to a mother, which is a clear elevation and a demonstration of the Christianity and women before God. God is, who is our father also said, but I'm like a mother without any gender confusion. Because God is not male or female, God is God. And we have these images and these understandings. He helps us understand using these images for us. But here in this particular passage, one of the ones that I think is intended to give us perhaps the most comfort, although it's tough to be a mother, is the image of a shepherd. Not just a shepherd, but of the good shepherd that he uses here. He gives us this picture because he wants us to know that though he is holy, he's the one who's, who works and, in this case, sends people into exile. So it's not that something happened outside of God's control. Whatever happens in our lives is not outside of God's control. But if it's within God's control, then we comfort the God because we know he has control. So God, who has put them in exile, has allowed them in this situation, is also the one saying, here's how we're going to take care of it. I'm going to be the one who's going to take care of this for you. I'm going to be the one who's going to give you comfort. The God who is holy and just is also the God who is merciful and the giver of comfort. And again, he is going to shepherd us as a good shepherd. He knows his sheep. Of course, he knows what's going on. He knows what we're like. He knows us better than we know ourselves. I mean, I've never been a shepherd. I've had a dog, but I've never had a shepherd. I've never been a shepherd. But you know, even the dogs I've had. You know, I've had mostly great things who are not the brightest dogs, but even still, even if you had a bright dog, I would imagine none of your dogs would come and say, hey, you know, I think it's time to take me to the vet. Something's going on, I'm not sure exactly what it is, and so we need to, we need to go see somebody who knows what to do. Animals, by instinct, they, they have instinct. They may, you know, be active, they may lie dormant, and they actually heal. But you who love your animal, the shepherd who loves the sheep, recognizes in them things that the animals themselves can't possibly understand and therefore gets them the help that they need. Jesus is the shepherd for us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he's promised that he's also capable of controlling our circumstances. He can see not only what we're enduring, but where there's potential threat. He says that I am going to be that shepherd. I'm going to be the one who cares. I'm going to be the one who gives to you. And provides. This is really important for us to consider as these things all work together. Because I do think that there is another instinct that we tend to have when we are weary or when we are afraid of the future because of our present circumstances. And that is to think harsh thoughts about them if our circumstances are not unusual. God, are you there? God, do you know? God, do you care? But using the imagery of God saying, I am going to be the shepherd, it's the promise in verse 11. He, which is the promise of Jesus Christ, the revelation of the glory of God, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead those who are with young. All of these are the power of God that's already been revealed in that illustration of gentleness, of loving, and caring 
So we take out his word. We take out his word, we know who we got his word. Confronts that fear that we have that God doesn't care or God's not able to do it. It reminds us that the character of God is actually right. And this is the comforting news. This is comforting news for the new believer who wonders what the world you've gotten yourself into. Is it just a matter of following the rules? I don't know if I'm ever know all of the rules. And why don't I seem to be able to make any progress here or what's in the road ahead of me? Your promise to you is we don't know the road ahead of you, and you're not going to know the road ahead of you. None of us know the road ahead of us. But God, who's our shepherd, knows the word ahead of us. He will comfort us. He will carry us. He will comfort us. It's good news to the students, particularly at William Mary, who struggle with anxiety in serious ways. It's, you know, if you don't get an A on this paper, then your whole life's over. You might as well just. You know, quit school, go become a sheep herder or something at some point. And God says, no, there's something greater, something better, and identity is that he loves you, which can give comfort if you don't measure up to your own expectation. It's good news to the person who is a slow grower, who looks back at their life or looks at their life and says, why do I keep doing the things I don't want to do? Why don't I do the things that I want to do? It's a reminder that it's not about our effort primarily. It's fascinating to me in this passage is this is not an instruction of how to behave. It's a turning of our attention to the one who loves us, who created us, who cares for us, who has made promises to us. It turns us from our own instinct. We might find the benefit and relief. I would say here experientially and take the promise from scripture is this there is no greater comfort than knowing that God Himself and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ has promised to be the shepherd of your soul. Here in these verses we have the word of the one who is committed to help, committed to comfort. Even in your most weary and worldly times. God, give us the grace to trust Him with the wisdom to enable us not just to know, speak theology, draw from the well of grace, but receive the comfort that leads to change. Father, we give thanks to you for this word. We are all in need of in time church. I pray that we would be a people who would meditate upon this truth and seek the comfort for those who are hurting now, that they would find comfort. For those who may not be hurting now, but know those who are, that they may lead others in the way of comfort. For all of us to know the days when we are in need of them. Lord, you have not abandoned us. In Christ our shepherd. We find our Bless us. Let us be blessed to others. It brings pleasure to you all. Pray in Jesus. Amen.